Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage of the Podcast. Before we start this week's episode featuring recent Storyteller Vault Works, I wanted to note that February 12th is the last weekend for executive producers to vote on what should be included in Lore of the Umbra, my placeholder name for an M20 Storyteller Vault book that Mage of the Podcast is going to try and release this year. Also, to our executive producers, if you'd like to get one of the first-run Mage Prime stickers produced by Rusted Icon, I need to get your shipping address before March 4th. Links to both of those are in the Patreon. Thank you for your support. Our next episode after this is on Swashbuckler's Handbook, followed by How to Write Game Principles to Guide Play at Your Table. In a few weeks, I'll be talking to Steve Dempsey on the magic and cosmology of William Blake, and I think I finally have an ethnomusicologist to talk with me about music and magic in world culture, at least some of them. Today's episode features three conversations with community content creators about their works. The first is Charles Siegel, who did a publication called Magical Capital on traditions corporations that could give access to high levels of the resources background and otherwise be included in your game as a kind of companion to Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic, as well as Foreign Magics on Minor Spheres for Medium Schools, Fey-Blooded, and Kinfolk characters. Next, I talk to Jenna Floor on her one-shot module Adventure to Hollow Earth, as well as How to Write Mage Adventures Gooder. Finally, I talk with T.O. Webb about his latest fiction piece, Gathering Shadows, about strangeness and oddities of North Texas. Links to all these works are in the show notes. And with that, on with the show. Our first guest is Charles Siegel, noted Storyteller Vault author and an all-around big fan of Mage the Ascension. Charles, how you doing? I'm doing well. How about you, Terry? I'm doing swell. Charles, you've produced a number of Storyteller Vault publications recently, and we're going to go through them in kind of rapid order. One of the ones you did is this fascinating project called Foreign Magics. What is kind of the frame or contrivance of that project? So not too long ago, Pukagar put out Book of Fragments, sort of expanding the rules for minor spheres and putting out a bunch of of, uh, example ones. I think the initial minor sphere stuff could be found in, I think it was revised Made Storyteller's Companion or some such. The idea being that you can custom create spheres so that your character who is a fire mage who wants to summon fire elementals doesn't need to learn like all of spirit. They can just have the sphere of fire, which will allow that also, but they also don't need to learn the whole sphere of forces because they don't care about like telekinesis or gravity, they care about fire. Uh, so it's a way to adapt the power, the sphere system to paradigms. In the discussions we, ha- we had around while Puka was writing the book, I thought, you know, this could actually be really good for representing the magic that mages could acquire by being related to one of the other game lines. There's four big merits in mage that can really change the tone of the game. Uh, there's more than four merits in Mage that can really change the tone of the game. But the four I'm, gonna, I'm talking about are Ghoul, Kinfolk, it's formerly like Fairy Blood and Medium, which associate you with vampires, werewolves, changelings, and wraiths. And what I know of those lines, it is mystifying that those are merits and not flaws. Oh, and Ghoul is especially bad because it's a merit. It costs you five points. And if you use revised rules, there is no good thing about it. No. <laughs> so my thought was, Why don't we kind of align these into one framework? And instead of saying, well, your mage that drinks vampire blood gets access to disciplines, which if you don't have a copy of Vampire the Masquerade sitting around, or you just really don't want that extra mechanical complication, your ST just says, no, you can't be tied to vampires because I don't want to deal with the vampire mechanic. And similarly, there's all sorts of things that Kinane and Changeling and Kinfolk and Werewolf and that mediums can do that are outside of the usual mage rule set, or else mages are excluded from the superpowers by virtue of, well, you're already a mage, you can't have gifts, which also kind of makes it 
a less interesting merit than it would be if you got some sort of benefit from it. So I did, I went across the four of them. And for each, I pick, I made up three minor spheres and said, well, if you're a ghoul, you don't get disciplines in this set, in this framework. Just disciplines are a thing that vampires get. It's a part of the static properties of vampire blood. What you do get cheap and easy access and intuitive access to like the minor sphere of blood, the minor sphere of dominance and the minor sphere of immortality. A lot of mages will put up with a lot from vampires to get access to a sphere that that is one sphere that te- that can let you do immortality based stuff. You you have to be a master to get full immortality, but four dots will let you become a lich, which is, you know, always a good choice. For kinfolk mages, they get spheres of the wild, the weaver, and the worm. For mediums, they get passions, oblivion, and necromancy. And for kinane, there's oaths, dreams, and names. And strictly speaking, everything that these do, the nine spheres can do, but these are cheaper. They come easily if you have the appropriate associations. And they really point to the flavor of what your mage is likely to be able to do because of that association. So one question I have, just thumbing through. So one of the things introduced in this text is the idea of a blood note. And I will read from the text. Though one's expression of mastery is the creation of life, another is the ability to create nodes. This is expensive, and the nodes are suffused with bloody resonance, that seems appropriate, to the point where mages without the sphere of blood are unlikely to be able to use them. These nodes are always gruesome and are the only sort of node that vampires can detect. Some vampire sorcerers can even use them. So uh, if you are curious, listener, what a blood node is, you now have an answer. And if you want a character to be able to create them, it is in here. So there are the ideas that Vitae is often treated as, you know, a kind of task. So the sphere of blood has some aspects of the sphere of prime in it. Basically, I thought that this, this would be cool. There's a, there are strong analogies between quintessence and lifeblood. And if you put enough prime in one, enough quintessence in one place with a prime five mage, you can make a node. So if you put enough blood in one place with a blood five mage, you can make, a, you can make something that is node-like, at, le- at the least. It's going to be horrible. The amount of blood you need is very high. You're exsanguinating multiple people to do this easily. You are committing horrible, horrible crimes. But you get a note out of it. Yeah. Which also thematically makes the mage a bit more like vampires now, doesn't it? I also like that there is a rote with the sphere of immortality at two dots of this is not a place of honor. And we have a plaque that says that above uh, the kitchen. So um, I, w- I was pleased to see that. That was one of the, more, one of the ones I really enjoyed write, uh, writing because every so often social media finds the proposals for how to actually warn people away from nuclear waste disposal sites for generations and generations when languages change. And that's where this is not a place of honor comes from. It's an attempt at a warning to future generations in case civilization collapses. Don't go here. You will die. There is nothing worth digging up if you dig up the things here and it will be horrible and painful and miserable. Also, do not go here. So immortality could also has some aspects that I could kind of think of as a sphere. I could all, I considered making it a sphere of deep time, but immortality fit thematically better. But you can still see some of that deep time thinking uh, in the sphere. Ours says this is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here, but it's in like the live, laugh, love font. So <laughs> I, is, I approve entirely. That, um, that is my kind of home decor. So what kind of research did you need to do to produce this? Like, did you go to kind of emulating the the basic text and such of the kind of the source 
games or how do you feel that you did in trying to figure out what these powers are and then matching them to levels? For matching powers to levels, I did that based on what the spheres can do. At least to first approximation, everything is where the highest dot of an effect that would use it goes would go. You can't get to true immortality until you get to five dots. It requires five dots of like eight spheres in order to, in order to do it normally. The only sphere you don't need, ironically, is prime. No, you absolutely need prime too. So yeah, as far as leveling the powers goes, I leveled them to match the spheres in mage. Like minor spheres aren't supposed to really shift things up and down the ladder. They just absorb the conjunctional requirements while shaving off parts of the sphere that you just no longer have access to. Yeah, for the merits, I did look through the core X20 books to sort of get a sense of how they, of what they say, you know, ghouls, kinful, kinane, and mediums should be like. And then I just wrote stuff. I Like the research was not very, was not very important to this. Like I matched kind of with less with actual specific powers that say vampires or werewolves might have and more with what is thematic for vampires and, and werewolves and changelings and wraiths. Uh, so the mage can still often do things like a mage with um, f- uh, several dots of the sphere of passion is definitely doing things that wraiths can't do, but it's no, but it's things that will be very useful if they are dealing with wraiths a lot. Some of them are even things that the, that the other uh, line would not want them to be able to do. Like I think, um, Sphere of Dominance 5 lets you reverse a dominance relationship. Is not good for your Dominor. Two other questions. So this book contains both original art as well as original sigils. Where did the sphere emblems come from? You propose sphere marks for all of the minor spheres. So the sphere symbols came from, they are like the uh, original sphere symbols in Mage coming from alchemy. Like the, the symbol for blood is in fact an al- a symbol that alchemists used for blood. The others are a little bit more, you know, abstract because like the alchemists generally didn't have a specific sigil for oaths, but considering that oaths are binding, what else binds changelings? Iron. So I used a sigil for iron for oaths. That's how a lot of them went. The sigils came from, came from alchemy and I commissioned an artist to make mage aesthetic versions of the sigils because obviously... You know, like 12th century alchemists did not re- draw them in the way that mage does. The other thing is most of the art, if not all of it, seems to be done using machine learning transformational models. In this case, probably Midjourney or something similar. Yep. What was it like as someone who I know has spent a lot of time trying to find good art assets and such? What was your experience using what I'll call AI image generation tools for a Storyteller Vault publication? So considering the margins on Storyteller's Vault, it became very quickly clear to me that either I was going to keep reusing the same set of images over and over and over again, going through the official art packs, plus like a couple of um, free art sites, or I was going to use AI art. So like the first the first thing I did was like, there's not anyone who you know didn't get paid because of this. And in fact, this is the first project I've ever bought art for. It's also the first project I've ever used AI generated art for. I did it partly because I wanted to get some more variety, but also I, it's currently a copper bestseller. That means it sold like 50 copies. So I have more or less made back what I spent on art. 
anything additional and this and instead of existing this book would not exist because it just would not have been financially viable i know that there's a there's a lot of art available for storytellers fault like for all of the um complaints i might have with um old white wolf and with paradox and so on the art packs were great and it's something that a lot of the other um community content programs out there don't provide that said it's still a fixed set you still run through it pretty fast especially if you don't like some of the art or whatever. I'll admit that also on um, my previous uh, Storyteller's Vault project, uh, the last one of 2021, which was uh, Paradigm Explored Numbers and Shape, I kind of got burned by the free art, by the free art sites. Um, I found something that was listed as royalty-free art. I used it as the cover. And then I was informed by someone who worked at whichever video game company it is, uh, it, it is relevant that this art was from The Witcher. I've never played The Witcher. I've never watched The Witcher. I had no idea that I was using art that had been stolen with no attribution or um, licensing. And I had to change the cover of the, pro- of the project. And the new cover isn't as good. Like, I don't like it as much. But as far as I can tell, no one owns the copyright to it. So this has made me a little bit more skittish about using things from like Pixabay or Pexels or any of those other you know sites that collect community you know Creative Commons art, and so then either I'm stuck with just the provided art packs, or I'm paying a lot of money for art, in which case I just can't afford to do anything on Storytellers Vault anymore, or I'm using AI art, and I decided to go in the AI AI art direction partly because I was already playing with these things because in my day job I am an AI researcher. So the second publication of note just kind of to space out the two larger ones is you did an m20 interior word template Uh, what is that and why did you make it so though i have since moved to uh doing my layout in indesign when i started working on doing storytellers vault stuff i did everything with with word and as the other people who've used the word uh, templates that were provided can probably can generally attest, there are a lot of issues with the official template. From new pages, sometimes seemingly randomly having the vampire borders, to the chapter title boxes not showing up in the out in the outlines so that your bookmarks, the bookmarks when you export to PDF aren't right, and actually the spacing like the spacing between lines is bigger in the word template than it is in the InDesign template. So just switching to InDesign will drop the uh, the page count of your project by a non-trivial fraction. Over time, I had noticed all of these differences between the word template and how the books are actually laid out and all the errors that I spend a lot of time correcting. And I had built up my own template that corrected them and I was using it. I just, And at some point last year, I just decided, you know what? I'm not even using this anymore. I've shared it with a couple of people when they've when they've complained to me about the official template having problems. I'll just put it on the put it on the storytellers vault to pay what you want and hope and hopefully um, it'll make life a little bit easier for people who are doing their writing and their layout all in Word. Generally, I'm in favor of things that make it more likely that things will be created for storytellers vault, and I'm hoping that this does that. And so, mostly, this is a case of this thing exists; it is improved. Throw Charles a couple of bucks. If you want to, if not, don't, but uh, it's there. It's something that lowers the barrier to entry. The last thing that we're going to discuss is Magical Capital. What is Magical Capital? So it's intended as a companion book to Rich Bastard's Guide. So Rich Bastard's Guide was all about what do mages do when they have fantastic wealth? It's really obvious where a technocrat could get their hands on fantastic wealth. 
uh, especially a member of the syndicate, but the other conventions, it's not really hard to see. Where do the traditions get enough money to do these things other than inheritances, which frankly are boring? Like from a story standpoint, this character inherited a ton, inherited a billion dollars is a boring uh, piece of backstory. It doesn't really give you much to do other than just, well, I guess I could take, take it away by having someone steal it maybe like there's no there's not very many plot hooks that inherited a billion dollars gets you as opposed to say owns a billion dollars worth of this random of this weirdo corporation that has that has needs and and whatnot so i put out magical capital which is nine corporations one built around each tradition with the intention of be, of being plot hooks and places where mages could get their money both fantastic amounts if you're in the ownership group of any of any of these or smaller amounts if you're just an employee like if your mage needs a job working for one of these might be a little bit easier than working than working for you know otalis and certainly less ethically compromising than otalis so you make one for each of the traditions what is one that you're particularly fond of you know in the writing i definitely got attached to all nine of them they are definitely going concerns in games that i'm running going forward yeah, I made sure to give each of them across them. I think that there are nine roads and nine wonders, but they're not all like not each of them has two has one of each. I'm gonna have to go the Verbena one, which is that the Heirloom Seed Company or yes, yes, Heirloom Seed Company. I was just blanking on the name. Makes a point of preserving sort of fantastic plants. That's the one I also had to cut the most material for to make it fit into the formatting. I have somewhere lying around about like three more pages of like magic plants that I, that will get shoved into something eventually. But I just had a lot of fun researching and also, and just making up magic plants to stick in. Yeah. You include the, the, the fruits of immortality, which have any number of cultural incarnations, uh, Iden's apples or the, the Chinese Jade Emperor's China. preach. Yeah. You have the hundred knot bamboo. What is that? So bamboo grows and um, it grows in sort of layers and there's knots in between the layers. So this is bamboo that will grow super big. And that's about it. It just grows super big. And it grows there pretty darn fast too. Uh, so it's a really good it's a really good renewable resource. Bamboo is used for a lot of thing, can, things in the modern world. Flooring, cutting boards. If you've got enough of it, you can burn it for fuel. And just having bamboo that grows that fast and that tall is itself an economically useful thing to have access to. Yeah, something that turns photons into cellulose very effectively. Uh, photons and CO2 and water into, into cellulose is, is pretty handy to have. If you actually plant large enough amounts of this, it could actually have a material impact on CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Keeping in mind that this stuff is growing like 20 times the size of normal bamboo. So normal bamboo grows to, to be about five segments, and this is 100. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to encourage someone else to make a magical corporation or source of great wealth, you went with kind of the uh, the company route. Do you have any advice on how to build your own mage corporations? Uh, the main thing is to think about what characters want. Like, yeah, sure, they want money, but what else? A lot of th things I do are built around the question of what do the characters actually want to accomplish? And so, like... A lot of Verbena want to fight against the wave of extinctions that we're dealing with, frankly, that we're causing. And while a lot of attention gets paid to, you know, the cute furry things that are going extinct, 
a lot less attention gets paid to everything else. So this corporation pays attention to plants. If you can come up with any way it could turn into money, doing something similar with insects would be would also be like a very appropriate thing. I could also easily have made that a dream speaker focus because the dream speakers are also very anti-extinction. But instead, I, I played into Pentexas antagonist a little bit. And the dream speakers are up essentially up against Endron trying to pr- provide clean, renewable energy, uh, particularly solar. They are doing it very well because they can make pacts with heat, with sun spirits in order to make sure that the that things go well. And they're trying to fight the fossil fuel and the fossil fuel industry from that end. Yeah, meanwhile, Hermetics love books. A publishing house is kind of an easy, it's kind of a gimme for them. Yeah, just think about what the character, what characters want to accomplish, what sorts of things they like to do, and then you know, usually there is some small thing you can ch- you can tweak that will turn it into a thing that a mage could make a lot of money doing. Yeah, one of my particular things is all of the Sphere One dot abilities give you access to a new sense, more or less. How would you be able to monetize that new sense? What does the world look like if random events become slightly less random? What does the world look like if things that are currently unreliable become slightly more reliable? I would be curious to see a, a mass transit system operated by a group of people that had access to the sphere of entropy. Yeah, it gives a good framework uh, for money. Any, any thoughts about doing this for crafts? So a little bit harder, partly because they are so culturally bound and partly because a lot of them have an ethos that specifically is not interested in money. Okay, how are we going to monetize the Sisters of Hippolyta stuff enough to make it like a major world corporation? Like I just, and the Batini probably have their fingers in a lot of corporations, but there probably isn't a Batini corporation at all because that would be unsubtle. Meanwhile, the tough time you're just like, yeah, money, we got it. <laughs> Take, deal with it. Like, it. And the Templars, of course, have banks, Def, would definitely have a bank. The, the Templars are an interesting case where the Templars are rich, but a Templar is frequently not. Yeah. And I don't think Mage has a, a good way to approach that that conversation. So, Charles, uh, as we start 2023, what do you think your next publication out the door might be? One thing that I've been try- I'm trying to do for 2023, I actually started working, doing this a bit in the second half of 2022, is I'm spending more time doing development work and uh, working with other people doing a lot of the writing. So one project that I expect will be out relatively soon, where relatively can be interpreted liberally, is a book kind of similar in scope in many ways to Magical Capital. There's going to be one an example of each of something for each tradition, but instead of corporations, it's going to be liches. Okay. So, so think, what does an Akashic Lich look like? What does an Aetherite Lich look like? What does the tradition's opinion on these, uh, as rare as they may be, and the fact that the Lichdom wrote first appeared all the way in Dead Magic 1, pretty late in Mage, a lot of words have been, have been spent talking about Liches and Mage. Partly because Liches are a really cool thing in like Dungeons and Dragons, and every role-playing game in the world lives in the shadow of Dungeons and Dragons. But also because there's a lot of threads in Mage that can that can be tied together into into questions about what is the price you would pay for power, uh, what is the price you will pay to accomplish the th- whatever thing it is that you want, and Lichdom is an extremely high price. It gives you the ability to spend however much time you need in order to accomplish your goals, makes you very hard to kill, and it doesn't require mastery, which is really a 
big deal because each level of Arate is significantly is supposed to be significantly harder than the one before it. And so there's the Lichdom ro- uh, ritual from Dead Magic, and everyone basically agrees that that's how hermetics do it. Do it and think of Lich as a hermetic thing. I haven't heard anyone really seriously push back on that because I think it's in like the Greece and Rome section, even the Etruscans got a bunch of people together and we're writing variations on the ritual for each tradition. Three of the traditions have gone through final draft. Um, Once first drafts are done, usually things can move relatively quickly. So I would anticipate sometime in the next couple months, probably, uh, depending depending on if anyone has any external factors that really cause a problem. You know, hope that none of us have anything bad happen to us. I hope nothing bad happens to you. Charles, you mentioned that, or, or we've talked before about as a creator that you started a Patreon. So if anyone wants to see any of these projects kind of before they are finished, where can they go do that? Patreon.com slash Charles Siegel. My focus rework that I've been talking about for probably about a year now gets posted periodically. It's Coming along, I'm past the halfway point on the draft. On the draft, now it's mostly fill in details of examples, give advice for seekings for ver- in various situations. Still got about a hundred a hundred rotes and wonders left to write. May have been overly ambitious when scoping this book. It's going to be about ninety thousand words, about five thousand of which are the core mechanics. But there's a lot of paradigms and practices in various books, and I wanted to make it a one stop shop for everything. So. Every paradigm has a bit of a write-up. Every practice has a, has a significant write-up because practice is what I'm centering. That goes on my Patreon periodically. The Liches project has not gone on my Patreon because with all the other writers involved, but for projects that I'm the primary the primary um, person on, you know, they go on my Patreon. At some point this year, I'm planning on starting fiction on my Patreon. But you don't change tracks when you're you know having a, having a good streak. And I had a couple of two thousand to three thousand word a day uh, days already this year. Well, we'll include a link to your uh, your Patreon in the show notes, as well as to the works that you have done so far. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Always happy to be here. And our next guest is Jenna. Jenna is the author of Adventure to Hollow Earth, which is a lovely little Storyteller Vault supplement on, creatively, an adventure to hollow earth. Jenna, how you doing today? Hi, Terry. Glad to be here. Longtime listener, first time caller. And Jenna has assisted me with a few Mates the Podcast projects previously, and you may see her name titled, uh, listed as an editor in, in some of my works. And, and as Jenna said before the show, raking in the nickels, the glory of the storyteller vault. Your latest publication is Adventure to Hollow Earth. What is that? It is a pre-made adventure for Mage. Why do D&D people get all of those? And I said, not on my watch. And I play tested this. I ran it at Triacon that Terry hosted. I designed it for beginners and high level people alike. Cause that was the point of Triacon, trying what you didn't know. And I thought it turned out pretty well. It is pulpy. So it's not your Sometimes we tend in mage to go a little bit like the hubris of magic, which is which is a really great and interesting way to go down to. There's many genres in television and movies, etc. There's many genres in mage. So I was reading the Society of Ether first book, the Bill Bridges intro with Doc Eon, and I got inspired by it and I wanted to run an adventure and I just kept finding supplements that weren't fulfilling my needs. So I wrote my own adventure and then I translated it for everyone else into the supplement. What do you think is special 
or important when building a adventure for mage? I feel that especially if you're with new people, like if you've had that session zero and you know what your characters are going to play or you know what your players are going to do, that's fine. But if you're if you're a new GM, especially who doesn't have that kind of perception or if you're running a convention game or you're trying to get friends into Mage, the thing is to make the adventure tradition and sphere agnostic in a sense that let your friends be creative, let them dip their toes into the water on how they're going to understand Mage. Because once you understand it, then you can dive into the lore. So I picked something that was popular. I'm not saying it's mainstream. I mean, Hollow Earth is not (laughs) the Kim Kardashian of ancient literature or something (laughs) like that. But it's had enough media presence and it kind of exudes fun and exciting and adventure, if I will, to my own horn. If you can start that way with what people know. My first ever RPG character was an NWO agent with the technocracy and I wasn't getting it. And my friend said, did you watch Men in Black? And I said, yes. And he's like, do you want to be Agent J? Your name's, name is Jenna. And I said, okay. And then I was able to work throughout the missions on a stabilized footing in my mind, if that makes sense. You know, it's kind of like you can't teach someone physics if they don't know like arithmetic. So you just have to kind of start slow and make learning fun, I guess, because games are supposed to be fun. Games are fun, but sometimes hard. Um, Yes. Why don't you think there are more kind of adventures published? As you mentioned, why does D&D have all of it? I think the biggest thing for me is that with Mage, it's very easy to skew it towards like one tradition. Like, so instead of D&D having, you know, you have your cleric, your fighter, your wizard, your ranger, you know, sorcerer, whatever, you can kind of fill in that fourth slot however you want. But with mage you don't i mean people are usually picking different themes and different traditions so like making it that anybody can be there anybody can have any kind of magic and so the hardest part for me was making challenges that could be figured out both mundanely and magically Uh, can you give an example of one of those challenges where you're like you can magic your way through it or you can use the sphere of common sense sure i have a puzzle I thought it was cool. Play tested it a couple of times. I didn't want to make it so difficult or so niche that people wouldn't understand. But I also didn't want to make it like kind of like an easy crossword. So I designed it and I gave clues. And so the characters go through a cave and they get a lot of clues about the puzzle from murals on the wall, etc. But a couple groups didn't understand it. So they used their magic to manipulate the control panel. And that was perfectly fine. It's rewarding creativity. Other people wanted to kind of like, as a group, they said, let's give this 10 minutes. Let's really try to figure this out from the clues. They were more of a thinky bunch. And they went from there. As long as your crew can figure it out, they have kind of a collective joy out of it. That's what it's more about. So it's like, if you have a big group that's not really understanding the magic system, which is the hardest part of mage, then there's a way that they can get through the adventure unscathed. I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make when they're trying to create mage adventures is, to me, it is a case frequently of rather than having one or two large impediments that there is a very specific way to navigate 
through is having that field of kind of small impediments um, that magic can help you through. So as opposed to having one or two blockbuster scenes where it's like, oh, this is a remarkably ingenious trap you've set up, or oh no, this is a boss battle. I don't think Mage necessarily thrives in those spaces just because of kind of the boom bust nature of periodically just magicking your way out of a problem or what have you, that having a bunch of incremental small things, especially that the method of dealing with them generates consequences for you later on. It's kind of something I, I consider key to, to developing developing a mage adventure, uh, says the man who has yet to actually publish a mage adventure. But I'm in the, the hearty fistful of notes phase, so I hope one day that distills down. But uh, yeah. Do you think mage would benefit from a dungeon crawl? It depends. Okay. I'm sorry. It didn't mean to have an audible sigh. That, no. I that's, think I had that audible I'm sigh. Gonna, I'm going to take that. I'm going to make it louder. I'm going to add it to my soundboard. And, and, you know, we're, 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 I, I think it depends on what it is. And I think I'm having the audible sigh because I can't come up with it in my head right away. So I, I you know, like, I want to contribute to this thought, but I don't know. I feel like if the dungeon crawl was done in a way that's clearly not just in, like smushing maids into D&D, and just instead using the outline of a dungeon crawl and making it and making it mage. So that's how I how I feel about that. And I actually feel like a venture to Hollow Earth is a little bit of a dungeon crawl because it's kind of like a straight line. I took a screenwriting class many, many moons ago. And the movies that are always kind of stood out to me as having like really good pacing. I always went back to one room movies. We're looking at Clue. We're looking at just different ones like that, where they're all in a play or they're all in one house or they're all like trying to escape. I'm not really trying not to <laughs> promote Cube here. That's yeah. not really a great movie. <laughs> and so like, I have the adventurers go through the jungle part and then there's a couple parts of the cave and then they get all of the other side. So if I was going to say, is it a dungeon crawl? I say, I think it kind of fits that category because you can kind of, you get a little puzzle in that and then not just to promote sales, but to say like having it in this linear design, giving them a clear cut, this is what we need to do. This We can't teleport out. We can't do this. We have to focus on each thing at hand. Really streamline the players to be able to focus. A lot of game masters have run this. It has a three to four hour runtime. Some people have run it in less than three hours and it was still enjoyable. So just to circle back, I think it really depends on how we're describing Dungeon Crawl in this. It feels like there are kind of two ways to look at it where one is there are multiple paths. You have some notion of a room or an obstacle, and there is one way to solve each obstacle. The other way to get variety is to have a linear sequence of events, but they can be dealt with in a wide variety of ways. And that is the option that you have taken. To me, a dungeon crawl is more, this is the room where everything's on fire. Are we good at dealing with fire? And if the answer is no, you don't go into the everything's on fire room. You don't have to but it's a way through, but it's clearly the everything's on fire room. You can definitely do the five room dungeon method that I've, that I've heard of before. Yes. That's perfectly valid too. I actually might be doing that for a future adventure. Uh, 
with a King Arthur type theme to it. And so it's, it just depends on how, like your theme and your mood and your pacing and what you expect out of it. Yeah. It, the five room dungeon is a kind of a template for building dungeon, the adventures where you have an entrance that has a guardian, you have a puzzle or role-playing challenge, some sort of setback, a boss fight, and then a reward. And you can move these together. You can have them branch off of each other. And it's just kind of a way of, of, of thinking of dungeon design. And I will include a link to uh, an article on the topic in the show notes. The thing that I want to see cracked is one of the limitations of dungeon crawls frequently is that it presumes that the game has mechanisms for running down enemy clocks, which is to say hit points, and recovering them, that you are balancing a certain number of finite resources. Mage really throws that off because magic is functionally an infinite resource up until you're comfortable accumulating paradox, but there's really no limit to the number of one dot or two dot sphere effects that you can practically do because with any non-trivial arete, your odds of botching are, are pretty darn low. Mage doesn't have a lot of good mechanics to have your hit points go up and down. It's a game with guns and you can get shot and mm -hmm. then you die. Once you have 60 hit points as a fighter in D&D, &D, if the opponent does 3d6 hit with each go, you're never going to get one shot. You're never just going to have that kind of TPK there. And Mage doesn't really have that analog. So to me, when it comes out to that kind of linear resource management, not necessarily linear, that kind of resource management, it almost is one of the things where we would need to create a dungeon crawl. But what you're actually doing is you're physicalizing a mystery. So it would still be your labyrinth thing, but it wouldn't be based fundamentally on combat or something like that. There would need to be some other resource. You're either up against the clock or to advance through it, you need some sort of resource that is going to be finite and meted out only slowly. So it's one of those things where my version of a mage dungeon crawl would probably be closer to something like navigate a festival at a mansion in Horizon or something like that. Oh, yeah, perfect. I mean, you can kind of do that. Um, the setting part of Midnight Circus, P.S., a book that I have been telling Terry multiple times to review, um, is really <laughs> is really good for that. Um, their pre-made adventure, not so much. But, you know, like you have a setting and I, I used it and I was like, there were different tents that you couldn't use different spheres in or something like that. So like, that's kind of how I equated, you know, you had to get stuff done by midnight and, and things like that. So I think it's, it, we as mage players just have to be, and GMs, or STs, excuse me, just have to be like really thinkier about it. Like there's so many ways you can solve the problem. And that kind of loops back to why is there not pre-made adventures? Because preparing for every problem is like impossible anytime in storytelling, but like with mage, it's even harder. One of those things that I mentioned early, kind of the dichotomy where you can have a branching path, but each obstacle has one solution or a linear path where each obstacle has several solutions. Frequently in mage, people are driven towards a branching path each with mm -hmm. several solutions. And combinatorically, that creates a huge amount of work that is non-trivial to write down. You're invariably going to miss something. And the storyteller who thinks this book has everything I need is going to be left hanging. Or it's going to be so large that it's almost innavigable. I remember reading a pre-made adventure for, I can't remember what game it was, but it was like, 
oh, based on these seven prior things your group may or may not have done, going into this encounter, this bridge troll may have an emerald hammer, or he may be positively inclined towards you. I'm like, oh man, I like the idea of this. But you're essentially saying, now you don't need to prepare, but you need to be comfortable doing accounting as the game goes on. I'm like, accounting in an RPG? What is this, Werewolf the Apocalypse? Random dig at how the system's in Werewolf. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's a good thought. And I think that's good advice for other people who want to write it. Who do you feel your intended audience for this was? Like, what player do you want to have pluck this out of the storyteller vault and go, yeah, I think this would be fun to, to be in. And what storyteller do you think should grab this and go, yeah, I think I could run this? Beginners, both ways. I come from a long line of educators. I focused on it so that this is the one that maybe you didn't take time to read all 700 pages. But you got into it and you knew what you're doing. And I kind of present this adventure and I was like, I got your stats for you. I got how you're supposed to do this. I have some pre-made dialogue a la D&D that... Our GMs can just read for like flavor text to set the mood in case that's not something you're used to. So I took that from Dungeons and Dragons. And then I said, the only thing you need to learn to run this as a new GM is the combat system of your choosing one through four, pick an addition and you know what the spheres are. So you learned about the spheres and the traditions and the combat, and then everything else is on the table for you. My intent was to run it for Triacon. And I wanted people who didn't know Mage to be in there. And while I did get some advanced people, people had run it before, the uh, they still had a nice little adventure. And I also wanted an adventure that concluded. I love going to conventions, but I hate all the hype. And then we spend 40 minutes on something and we only have so many things. And then like the end of the adventure is just you telling me all the cool shit that was supposed to happen if we had six extra hours. Um, so time management is a thing that I see a lot. And then I've learned out of the college bubble, that's like, hey, I have your attention for at most three hours. So I want it to feel fulfilling, unless I know that it's a two-part episode or, or whatever. So my intention was, this is the way you do it. This is for beginners. I even have a sidebar saying, hey, if this NPC that I personally made up in my head is not for you, change the aesthetics, change the tradition, change the paradigm. These are the things that you need to run this game. The PC has to say this so the end scenario makes sense. But it's kind of like I've told other GMs that I've worked with before, being their player or their editor or whatever, is that the character that you embody the most is the best character in game or on paper. So there's other NPCs that you think you have to have, like maybe it's not your jam running a syndicate person, and maybe you're just like way more into the virtual adepts. It shows, like I'm not saying you didn't do a good job, but it's kind of like write creatively how you want to create. And I've been inspired a lot by the uh, first edition GM screen. 
which is that crazy <laughs> yep. picture with like space ninjas and all this stuff. So it's like, I can have a serious game. I run serious games in my campaigns, but every once in a while, I'm just like trench coat katanas on dragons, on bikes, on, you know, this. And that's what Mage is supposed to be. You don't have to limit yourself. So I want everybody to experience that. And so that's why I wrote an adventure for beginning GMs and beginning players who want to put the effort into this game. The descriptor I would use in a lot of cases is it is generous. It provides maps for people who want that. And I know um, one of the problems I run into with a lot of storytellers is they just don't describe the terrain well enough for me to come up with a mental picture. Not that I want to have mini figs on a tactical sandboard or anything like that, but like you say a warehouse that's that could mean something across orders of magnitude. Are we talking about an Amazon distribution center? Are we talking about like the back room at a cosmetic store or something like that? Both of those can be referred to as uh, warehouses, and yours you include tiles, and that gives it scale. So when you describe the uh, the domed room, like oh no, you can give the appropriate sense of grandeur. This is ten squares across. This is a hundred feet. It's going to look this big. Another point of that, why I added that, is that. And I like worked really hard in MS Paint. They look good. <laughs> they're not like that... they're not stuff you're buying on Patreon. It was to stop the 20 minutes of questions so you can get that idea. You know, like, is there a loft in this warehouse? Are there boxes? Are there barrels or whatever? That's about the time management as well. And so I I added those things. Even if the GM just looks at the storyteller, excuse me, we've been talking about Dungeons and Dragons so much. Even if the storyteller like Terry was saying, doesn't is, is the only one who's using it. It it lets the flow go much faster and smoothly. And I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you for picking up on that. That's really nice. The stats are all on separate pages and so on, where it gives that the 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 T-Rex that appears has all the health boxes enumerated. So if you want to use that as a printout, you can just kind of tick down on it. The the pre-gens that you provide are also there that if people just want to print it out, it's not a stat block. It's already on a damn sheet. Another choice that you make with the pre-gens is you give them a fair amount of power. These characters are a retail four. They have nine, 10 dots and things why that okay again it goes back to like the beginning players the beginning gms if you're going to try to convince people to play this game who might not be into it and describe this huge tome of esoteric thoughts and ideas that are great but you don't know how to purvey that i call it the restaurant method when you go into a restaurant you get the whole menu and you're allowed to see like oh, oh, maybe I just want to order dessert for dinner and maybe I, or just maybe apps or go from there. If I started this, now I can run a first level adventure. I'm not saying that not, but um, I'm just saying that because I'm trying to teach the big ideas of mage, I'm not going to give you half of the drink menu and be like, this is the only thing you're allowed to see right now. You're a neonate. And so I want them to be like, let's do a campaign where we start from level zero. That's fine. You guys can do that. But the kind of the benefit of any game of Dungeons and Dragons or Mage or like, I'm I'm trying to think like Aberrant is a superhero game. That's fine. It's your goal is to get these higher level powers. You want to be Professor X. You want to be Storm. You don't want to be, you know, like kid who can, you don't want to be Jubilee. That can make fireworks, you know, kind of thing. So it's, 
let's taste everything that it has to offer is, is what I'm saying. And then we can backtrack or see what people like and go, go from there because they don't know their limitations and making this for a game that literally lets you create your own magic on the fly. <laughs> like you're already going to have to do that. So it's like, people are going to think big, you know, if you're just like, you have control over forces, what are forces? And you list them and you're just, the firewall comes to mind. I mean, that's just the default. So give the players what they want. This is a promotion, if you will. You know, this isn't meant for how you need to start every campaign. This is trying to get people into mage. And the big thing to me about doing something like that by giving characters in a retail of four or five or by giving them five dots and a whole bunch of abilities is it deals with the problem of kind of system mastery where a very experienced person knows how to get the most out of one dot in entropy or two dots in time or what have you. And with enough time, a player could say, hey, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? But when you're just like, you have four dots in forces, you can do the force thing. As you mentioned before, it it speeds things up. It lets them feel powerful. And the player probably isn't going to immediately jump onto, oh, these are interesting things I could do within the system that would have a ridiculous result that would allow me to trivialize this encounter, especially if it's built for new players. And if it's not, and if it's being played by experienced people, why are you using the pre-gens? So I think it does a, a good job of answering that. It, it is not uncommon for me in my one shots that everyone gets a retay four or five and has willpower seven or eight and has a whole bunch of dots because I, I want two people to be able to solve every problem and that frequently results in a lot of people having a lot of dots in a, in a lot of things so again uh, towards that theme of theme of generosity and it's also i know for like when i was teaching people how to play world of darkness they never played it before a lot of people who aren't math people love the idea of one die to one dot ratio so they can come into this being like, oh, I don't know a ton of games and maybe they're shy, maybe they don't want to project as much, but they can look at their sheet and be like, I know how to help. I have five dots in this. This is obviously what I'm good at. And they can kind of start molding the character the way they want from there. So what next project would you like to take on? The Storyteller's Vault all started with me also trying to fulfill another need, which is more city books for Mage. I am from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has a history of literally being so smoggy in the 1940s that they had to turn the street lamps on. So I automatically thought like umbral beings and vampires and all this stuff. So I have this kind of like supernatural history of Pittsburgh I'd like to present past and future um, for mage players. And I also have, I mentioned before, I, asked, I did like a small poll with my Triacon people about themes. I had different like themes I could write for their another one shot adventure. And all of them were like really jazzed about King Arthur. So <laughs> I recently contacted a friend and been like, hey, you have a master's in medieval literature. Tell me what I need to read. And I'm trying to get more obscure things about that. I'm not, I'm trying to not go in the classic route, but I'm kind of trying to go like, classic but not all the way to Monty Python but like kind of in between which is like more obscure things and I'm slowly trying to learn changeling at the same time but I think I might just reach out to some um some other help helpful people on storytellers fault for that and then I also have a another adventure in my back pocket called Moonbase Distress Call which you can hear beta test of on Golden Age stories that we usually run Technogate 2000 but I wrote an adventure for technocrats 
based off of my love of the alien genre, meaning like Sigourney Weaver, Aliens, Ripley, etc. Um, so that's probably going to be the next one published because I have the most notes. So it's probably going to be Moonbase Distress Call, Constructing Reality Pittsburgh. I'll just start a little discussion now. We can have our thoughts on the Discord. Pittsburgh is a technocrat city. Your thoughts are go. And then and then I have the other adventures that I'm like actively researching. Nice. I'll look forward to seeing those publications and for us to hopefully uh, talk when they're out in the world so people know that they exist and can get them if they want them. Any final thoughts on this? If people are interested in getting it, what should they look for and where can they get it? Um, it's available on the Storyteller's Vault for all your self-published mage needs. It is running at $5.99 just because it's like gives you puzzles, pre-made sheets, etc., maps, whatnot. If you would like to contact me about your thoughts, I'm a Luddite. I do not have a Twitter, but I'm on Mage the Podcast Discord. I'm on Discord. Uh, you can always feel free to direct message me if you have questions at jflow5000. I'd be happy to have some discussions. I, like I said, I'm a Luddite. I'm not on my computer all the time. So if it's something, a conversation you need to need me to jump into, you got to at me. Usually people say, don't at me. And I'm kind of the opposite. Other than that, uh, this was a wonderful experience. And I really appreciate you having me on the podcast and being part of the community. Gladly. We are here to play fun games with people that we care about and to create stories that matter. And anything that will further that, I, I consider part of the remit of Mage the Podcast, although sometimes I just kind of yell about systems. Uh, there was also a uh, an actual play that was done by Big Dad Industries. If you're curious to see that, I will have links to that in the show notes. It looks like their runtime was about uh, three and a half hours. So uh, the, the trade Jenna is making is, you give me $6, I will give you three to four hours of Mage, plus probably an hour of prep time just to figure everything out. One caveat on that is three of the four players he had playing that game had never played Mage before, and he still ran it in three hours. So it's it can be done. I believe in everyone. One shots can be one shots. So Monica Specka of Systematic Understanding of Everything refers to games run for the first time by people in a system as outsider art, and she is a big fan of exalted outsider art, and this allows for Mage outsider art. Jenna, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. In our next uh, discussion with a world of darkness, and specifically in this case, Mage the Ascension, Storyteller Vault creator is T.L. Webb, noted mage novelist. I think at three, we get to say noted novelist, and this being, I believe, your fourth. Uh, T.L. has written a new piece of fiction for the Storyteller Vault called Gathering Shadows. And from the cover alone, it feels like a slight departure, possibly, in terms of traditions, at least, from what we have seen in your previous work. T.L., how you doing? And what is Gathering Shadows? I am doing great. Uh, Gathering Shadows, as you may have noticed, is a left turn from the narrative as so far. We've been doing etherites, and now we're doing something with the hollow ones. And it will tie into the overall tale as things go on. It may not be immediately obvious, but it does tie in. It sounds like it's one of those things where it's part of a shared world. There are connections between the two. But if you haven't read the previous ones and you just aren't interested in maybe the theme or mood that came across in the previous pieces, you looked at the Storyteller Vault page and you're like, this, this is probably well done, but it's just not for me. But if this strikes your fancy, you can probably just dive into this without difficulty. That was exactly the, the mindset I've been trying to do with these short stories is to have as many of them be an individual story that taken together make a larger tale. So what is kind of the premise of the story? 
Well, the premise is that the Hollow Ones have found something that they're very excited about. One of their members has stumbled upon a hidden fortress mansion in the woods in North uh, Dallas. There are nature preserves that cut through the uh, track grid housing areas up there. And inside one of those, uh, he found this very large place that was set on fire and seemingly abandoned. He sent out a text to everybody. He said, get everybody out here. We got to check this out. And in mass, the Hollow Ones of North Dallas have gotten together all of the Awakened, the Sorcerers, and the Hangers-On, and they are going to fool about and find out. Interesting. So uh, this is kind of a, it, it, the setup at least sounds like it is a haunted house mystery, but this is Mage, and this is the World of Darkness, so I assume it's it's probably got a little more going on than that. It starts very Scooby-Doo and ends very Silent Hill. Well then, so who are the characters, the key characters in the story? Well, the principal character is a hollow one who goes by the name of Seraphine Indigo. And uh, she is a psychic, a witch, and an occultist, as many of them are. Her particular quirk is that when she awakened, she got tuned in to an ability to sense and detect lies. She's kind of obsessed with the idea. Any other key characters or maybe even key locations? We have a few characters here. There's a a hollow one who goes by the name of Michael, like Madonna or, or a Wong. And he's a self-taught Crowley-style hermetic-style uh, mage. He's probably the most powerful member of the group. An energy fire hose. High avatar rating. We have uh, Destruda, a neo-pagan roller derby enthusiast. And she is their best fighter. you got uh, one known only as Scout, who's a, a very secretive uh, survivalist. And he's a member of this group by necessity and survival, more than by fashion and aesthetic. A couple more, you have Drake, who's not awakened, but is a sorcerer. And then there is Slush, who... Slush is based on somebody I knew about 15 years ago, who was probably the youngest person I've ever met who permafried their brain. He'd done a few too many uh, chemicals, and he was not always entirely connected to reality, but definitely interesting to be around. Okay, so this isn't someone who had a uh, a terrible accident with a an electrical outlet. This was someone who who made we'll politely refer to as bad choices. Uh, definitely some choices, yes. Got it. So those are the characters. What made you want to explore the Hollowers? Uh, well, I wanted to do a, a horror story. I wanted to do, and uh, the Hollow ones seemed well suited for that. Uh, they are, you know unconnected to larger traditions and infrastructure of the awakened and they're the most likely to not know what they're getting into where do the inspirations for your characters come from oh goodness gracious where do i get ideas i get ideas from everywhere uh, one character was in, uh, inspired by a real person i knew uh, some characters are inspired by things i'd like to see people do but i haven't seen them do in a story some of them are very basic michael is a uh, very much uh, big, arrogant wizard who thinks he knows everything and is young enough to not yet know everything. So for those of us not familiar with the region where the story is set, can you kind of describe what the, let's say, the natural as well as the supernatural setting is like? North of downtown Dallas, you have an enormous stretch of residential, commercial it just goes on and on for miles and miles, just grids of roads and highways housing, uh, strip malls, and all this uh, infrastructure and people. And then you have where they've had to uh, let creeks and uh, nature centers thrive so that uh, they could you know, basically have water in the area. 
just split through the whole North Dallas territory. It's a, a very complex mix of natural, unnatural, electrical, concrete, and squirrels everywhere. Is there a major metaphysical side to it? Do you posit new locations or new types of places that, that don't exist otherwise, pocket realms or any odd magic? Well, uh, the hollow ones, uh, the elder hollow ones, the downtown hollow ones that call themselves the church goners have discovered a uh, umbral zone that either is everywhere or they're just the first ones to find it and document it. They're not sure yet, but they are calling it closet space. What they found was uh, what they call the boogie folk who uh, come in through closet doors. They have found a way to open portals from their realm into a door that is known fear. They are psycho, uh, what's the term? Uh, psychometrists. They, they feed and sense and see by uh, emotion. Following these, they uh, found their way into this strange shanty town built atop uh, what seems to be bridges that stretch off into the dark darkness uh, uh, surrounded by uh, cold, dark waters. And there's no light in this place, and they've learned not to take light in this place because there's things in those waters that do not like light at all and will swarm and attack. And, and what kind of is that place, or is that going to be spoiling what happens in the story? What is that place? Uh well, they haven't quite figured out what that place is. I throw a few hints in in the appendices, or appendix, appendices. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. You have the appendix of the singular, appendices of their several. Oh, there's three in this one. So yeah, appendices. <laughs> oh, nice. So this is a case where you do the thing that a number of World of Darkness novels do, or fiction pieces do, where they, where in one side it's like, hey, here's the story. And then, hey, if you want to include this in your game, here's a little bit more information. So we get an appendix kind of describing this closet space. Yes, yes. Uh, about three pages of uh, that I feel people can use to uh, figure out how to use this in their game. What was your thought process in coming up with kind of this supernatural other place? I'm generally of the opinion that while it's all well and good to have the umbre and so on, this is kind of, as you mentioned, it is a zone. So it is something that cuts across places and we don't actually get a huge number of those in Mage. Where did this idea kind of come from? A lot of media in my youth was set up to absolutely terrify me. My parents took us to see gremlins when I was seven, and they saw the cute little mogwai and didn't realize it was going to be nightmare fuel. And it was nightmare fuel. I spent a few months leaping into my bed so that nothing would grab me from beneath. And then you had uh, the Ghostbusters animated series had the boogeyman, and he lived in a realm uh, of closet doors that he could just come out and scare you at. You had a movie called Little Monsters, where Howie Mandel played a closet monster who would pop out from under the bed or the closet and basically feed on people's fear. This is an idea that's been following me around for a long time. Monsters Incorporated plays this for laughs, but uh, I find the concept terrifying. <laughs> the idea that there is something dangerous immediately next to us. It being doors, it is within your own home. And as you say, it is fueled by fear. There are several interpretations of it. The door to an HR department, the doorway to somebody in an abusive relationship, the doorway to where someone finds out like major test results or admission results for college or something like that. There's When we think of doors that behind them may lay fear, that's pretty big. One person opens it and is able to go to a community pool because they're uh, afraid of water and they don't want to learn how to swim or something like that. There are a lot of ways to take this that isn't just bedroom closet doors. Indeed. What lives in this strange realm? 
a number of things uh, uh, that have been chronicled there so far. There are uh, small uh, shapeshifters that will turn into something that they sense that you're afraid of and attack in mass. There are the, the weird things that lurk under the water surrounding the bridges, and no one's quite sure what they are because no one is uh, quite brave enough to go down there and mess with them. And then you have the boogie folk who are strange hunched creatures with long arms and small black eyes that uh, don't speak shuffle around with small hooded candles uh, from their shanties, basically using those as uh, uh, places to hide uh, their light. Where does the material in this realm kind of come from? Mostly they take it. Uh, the boogie folk can sense when something has been abandoned. And if people have forgotten and have no more interest in that thing, they can take that. They consider it to be fair game. Perhaps they have a rule about that. No one's been able to ask them. They don't really speak. They communicate empathically. So it's it sounds like they are not necessarily malicious, but their their food stuff is not something you would likely wish to provide them. Probably not. <laughs> no, they're meant to be curious and uh, sometimes a little frightening, but mostly really, really weird. Wearing cast off, yeah. Yeah, which to me is a great place for, for mage to be. There is a difference between horror and terror. And this is one of those things where where you get to kind of focus on that kind of uh, terror portion of things. And I think that's pretty neat. You also seem to refer to your works as episodes. Why why use that term? When I started this, originally it was the first short story, uh, Fireball Run. And it wasn't until I was nearly in, done with that that I thought I would continue it. And when I did, I wasn't sure what to call it. And I went with episodes as a default. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of thought into it. It was like, oh, crap, what do I call it? <laughs> do you have a next episode in mind? Yes. The next story is going to be uh, heading straight to the Hollow Earth. One of the etherites from the very first story is making his return, Dwight Cogmeister. And he is going to be trying to question the person who trained the man who attacked them at the race. And that will get enormously complicated, and there's going to be a lot of Nazi punching. <laughs> Uh, I'm pleased for that. The the the, uh, the hollowed renaissance, the hollowed the hollow earth renaissance, seems to be a, uh, a a fun place to spend time. What would you like to see fiction wise appear on the vault? Is there a thing where you're like, hey, I I wish this existed. I, I for one wish that more craft stuff. I would like. Uh, to, I'd love to see fiction that were done by someone that had like a deep familiarity with the practice and elements of uh, of some of the crafts what would you like to say well yeah i've been uh, uh chronicling in and one of the first dependents in every one of these stories is the uh basic rote and charm and magic list of what the characters have done in that story <clears throat> so if you want to know oh, how they do that i explain how they did that but i go very light on paradigm i go very light on methodology unless i have a very interesting story about it or i want to explain a joke that i set up earlier but uh, what I would like to see is people uh, getting more into those very like personal paradigms of how the mage did this. One of my inspirations was the uh, Penny Dreadful novel that came out uh, during uh, somewhere between uh, second and third edition, I believe. And there was some really neat stuff that they had Penny do, but uh, I don't think that if you saw Penny Spears, it would make any sense. <laughs> I think they just wrote, okay, and then she does this. <laughs> I'd like to know if they actually planned that out and what those were, but uh, they never did. And I'd like to see more of that. And, and once again, if someone is interested in writing their own fiction, how do you think they should start? 
oh goodness, if you want to write fiction, you need to read a lot first. So you got to get an idea of how the stories are put together, how to take them apart, how to reassemble the pieces. That takes a while. I found it listening to a couple of my favorite authors on audiobook because I do that while I work. And uh, just listening to stories, thinking about, okay, and he, he did that, and then he did that, and that's really interesting, but you could rearrange that to do it differently. And that's a skill that uh, you, you got to really work at, is to learn that, not just how to put the story together, but how to take it apart and uh, examine the parts. Thank you for describing your work to us. And as you become one of the preeminent mage storyteller vault fiction writers, thank you for sharing that professional journey with us. Any other thoughts or comments that you'd like to leave listeners with before we sign off? I have mapped this out to be about 12 short stories. I am nearly done with the first half. I'm a quarter of the way through right now. But uh, have a plan because I started this without one and I had to kind of, you wondered why I called it episodes. I'm kind of scrambling to keep up. Plan it out as best you can. Outlines are your friends. I've got whole files on my Google Drive of, of ideas that I've thrown at this master outline list that I will cut out and reassemble as I start putting each individual story together. Well, thank you for that advice. Uh, TL, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, glad to be here. This has been Mage the Podcast, where if you do something for Mage on the Storyteller Vault and it's halfway decent and you have an acceptable microphone, we'll totally talk to you about it. This episode was made possible by Sean Gallagher, Oracle of STV Works on Bombador, the shifting breed of bumblebees. Benjamin Bendelow, Oracle of STV Publications on the Minor Sphere of Condiments. Buck Gregory, Oracle of STV Publications on the Lagosi, the melodramatic Toreador bloodline. Christopher Phillips, Oracle of STV Publications on the Mehardu, the dynasty of undying based on the cartoon show Mummies Alive. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of STV Publications on the lost kith of the Caboodles, the kith formed from dreams of having all of your stuff neatly organized. Neil Patterson, Oracle of the STV Publications on the Hunter Creed of single mothers who are just very tired of this whole reckoning and want it all to be over so they can finally get some rest. Jay Widener, Oracle of STV Publications on the Guild of Annoyers who practice Aganactesis, the Arkanoi of causing annoyance and indignation. Mikhail, Oracle of STV Publications on the darkest setting wad games can take place in the suburbs. And finally, the crew of Erebus, Oracle of STV publications that provide unified rules for night folk, which is in fact just a reskinned copy of Urban Shadows. Additionally, I'd like to thank Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Guy Conan-Stewart, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, and Archmaster Patrick McNamara. Also, Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Anon, Paderfi, Berto, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Fraggerock, George Lara, Eobull, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinheimer, Ricardo, Richard Baprewster, Robarth Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H, Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out this week is to Jolyn Andes, who I presume is the heir or heiress or possibly some other gender-neutral form, let's say Eratron, of the Andes Mint Fortune. Delightful creme de menthe and chocolate wafers that to me as a kid were always the sign that we were out to eat and we weren't allowed to get dessert. Andes Mints were originally Andes Candies, spelled as the male name, but since they were often given as gifts, many men didn't like giving candies with another man's name on it, so they were changed to Andes like the mountain. The mint is apparently most associated with Olive Garden, where it has its own custom flavor, which sadly isn't marinara sauce, but something close to the mint parfait flavor. The Andes name and company have been sold at least seven times since its founding 73 years ago, and now whenever I see the dinner mint, I will think of you, Jolyn. 
Thank you for the support. If you'd rather listen on YouTube, search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform you're choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.